This season of Tune On Toast is happening thanks to my friends at Velvet Hammer Music and Management Group. So Bino is the CEO and the founder of Velvet Hammer. He's like, Stryker, all of us love your podcast. We want to support it. What do you need from us to make it happen so you have episodes every single week? I gave him A, B, and C. And within two seconds, he's like, we have you covered. Have any bands you want to have on? Just make sure to continue doing Tune on Toast. So thank you very much, Velvet Hammer. And by the way, they manage Corn, Deftone, System of a Down, Avenged Sevenfold, AFI, and Alice in Chains. Now let's get to another episode. Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called Tuna on Toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. All right, welcome to another episode of Tune on Toast. It is Ted Stryker, Alex Gaskarth from All Time Low, and Simple Creatures. The band he's in with Mark Hoppus, we discussed that, is going to join us in just a minute. So give me 90 seconds real quick. I am feeling super excited. I feel exhilarated. I'm filled with anxiety. And the reason is, so in my radio career, I've always worked for a company, pretty big company. But with this podcast, 100% of it is on me. It's totally independent. Not one human has one bit of influence on the execution of this show, who the guests are, what I say, what my questions are. It started off as a totally 1,000% one-man operation. But thanks to you... It has been building, and now it's a three-person operation. So we've got Sean Say in full effect on the cameras and the video editing. Then we got my man, Corey Irwin, who is helping me with the 10 zillion emails that I would send out back and forth directly to the artists, or if it wasn't the artist, their manager. So now... It's a three-person operation. We got Velvet Hammer sponsoring it, and we are looking for some more sponsors because we want to continue this thing week after week. But that's the reason why I feel excited, exhilarated, and anxiety because what started off is like, oh, I just want to do this. It's actually really growing. And thank you so much for supporting. And I can see when, like, there's new people that jump on board for a new episode, and then you go back and you're like, oh, this dude Stryker, he also had Mike Shinoda on the podcast and Tom DeLonge, or there's K-Flay, and there's Davey Havoc, or there's Chris from Dashboard Confessional. So again, thank you for listening to this podcast. I have so much gratitude. I'm so grateful. And if you can do one more small thing for me, give me a five-star rating right now, and then take... 40 seconds of your time and write a one sentence or two sentence authentic review about tuna on toast because it actually really helps with the algorithm and then more eyeballs and ears get on this show. Alex from All Time Low, one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet, but do not confuse that with his competitive spirit and the fire in his belly. What a songwriter and performer and All Time Low. These guys started back in 1947 when they were three years old. They started, these guys met, these screwball kids back out there on the East Coast. They met and they formed this band. And now nine full-length albums in, 
and so many tours, and what a fan base, and they put in the hard work. I have so much love and respect for All Time Low, and I, I, I'm lucky enough to sit here today and look back and say, yeah, I vividly remember hearing about All Time Low, whether it was a song early on or hearing people talk about, hey, there's this young band that is playing Warp Tour. They got a lot of people coming to see them. They have the fire in their belly. They're very determined, great songwriters, fun on stage, and incredibly nice to everybody that listens to their band. That led me many, many years ago playing them on the radio and screaming about them. Everyone needs to know about this band all time low. And now fast forward to the year 2023 and let's get to it right now. He came over to my house. The Tune on Toast studio, by the way, is my guest bedroom. And without any further ado, please welcome to Tune on Toast. Here's Alex Gaskar. Oh, hey, yes. You're right there. Love it. Here, I'll close the door behind. <laughs> hi, hi. This is lovely. Are you... Oh, you he respects wood. You gotta respect wood. <laughs> you gotta respect wood. Not everybody respects the wood. Alex respects it. I love that reference. <laughs> respect wood. <laughs> Who's the Vikings helmet? The old punter. <laughs> Chris Cluey is his name. Nice. So I met him on Twitter years ago. He was really funny. He likes the music that we all like. Cool. And I made a bet with him. I said, if you guys win the next game, because he was in a band, I was like, I'll play your song on the radio. Oh, but no way. But if you lose, you have to mention me in the post-game interview. <laughs> That's, <amazing. laughs> That's so and good. And they won. Okay. So I played his band called, oh my God, Tripping Icarus, I think it is. Yes. And then he sent me a helmet, which is so oh, nice. That's so sick. Chris Cluey. I love that. Yeah. Hell yeah, Chris. <laughs> Good bet to make, though, isn't that? Dude, that is so funny. <laughs> I, I, I would never wish a loss on the team, but like, right. that would have been incredible. <laughs> Chris, why'd you lose the game? Well, I just want to give a shout out to Stryker Yay. first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. First and foremost. Right. We've already spent about 12 minutes hanging out, but uh, on camera. You have been requested highly. People have wanted you here. So thank so you nice. for coming over. Thank you for having me. And thank you uh, to everyone for requesting me. And it's I'm so stoked to be here. We're going to start with this. One of my most recent episodes was Derek from Sum 41. Nice. It was nice until 72 hours later, they announced that they were breaking up. <laughs> I don't know if you heard. That was this the just, order? This Yes. You broke up the band. That's, and I'm like, wait a minute. What did you he do? He was just here. It was one of the best episodes. I mean, I was actually decent in this episode. Right. He Maybe was, too good. He was so good and so well spoken and yeah. thought out. Yeah. And then, uh, and then he's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to put out this double album and then we're done. <sighs> How is your relationship with your three bandmates right wow. now? Because I don't want to be the band jinxer. That is unreal. Um, I mean, our relationship is amazing. I mean, we are in a really great spot. Um, 20 years in. This is this is officially twenty years into our band's life, and uh, I don't know. We feel invigorated. We feel like we still have more to prove than ever, and I feel like you know we just keep finding ways to be excited about the band and about the music that we're making and about the the world that we're in. And um, I think that keeps it fresh, you know? So yeah, we're in a good spot. Good, 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 yeah. good. Derek's such a nice dude, by the he way. He is I have such to, a nice like, guy. Such a great, insightful human being. Yes. Yeah. And he's gone through a lot of S over the last 10 years and he's come out on the other side and yes. he seems super, super happy, yes. which made me feel great when we were done. I'm like, this guy's in a good place right now. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome to see. 
When you say reinvigorated, of course, over 20 years of doing something creative, there's the ebbs and flows of it. For I sure. even feel it in my bubble, which is a thousand times smaller than you. For but sure. what do you think it is, one thing or five things that makes you feel reinvigorated? I mean, it may sound cliche, but one of the biggest aspects that keeps me coming back to it is the, how rewarding it is to connect with the fans and the audience. I, I feel something so pure in those moments of getting on stage and hearing the crowd sing our songs back, especially as it pertains to new music. Cause it reminds you that it's not everybody just there on a nostalgia kick or chasing a memory Correct. from 10, which is Correct. also a great part of it. Don't yes. get me wrong, but there is when people are coming out and singing along louder to the new music, that is so affirming and reassuring that what you're pouring your heart into and spending your time evolving is connecting with people. And that means the world. And I say this a lot on my podcast. If you can connect with somebody one-on-one -on -one as a comedian, singer in a band, an entire band, a podcast host, you're connecting one-on-one. -on -one, it's like, that's the goal. For sure. It's like, they're speaking to me. And yeah. I think like you guys have done an incredible job in a, the most authentic way possible of doing that over these like 20 years, man. Thank you. Thank you. We've been, we've been, we've worked hard at it. And yeah. um, it, you know, it continues to be something where every time we knock down a new obstacle or get over another mountain, it's, it's kind of this, there's a wave of relief and a sense of accomplishment. And then I think we're, I don't know if we're just gluttons for punishment or like, <laughs> or whatever, but then there's always another goal. There's always the next mountain. And we're sort of like, I think that's always been the mentality of the band is to just continue to see how far we can reach out with what we're doing. Because I think the absurdity of it in our minds is the idea that we started this band in high school in a basement, literally, and had no intention of making anything of it. Um, didn't really think much past like the VFW hall gig that we had coming up that weekend. Yeah. So there was no chance in hell that we were like, one day we'll do Wembley. You know what I mean? It just wasn't in the... Or put nine full-length yeah. studio albums out. It was never part of the plan. And so I think with every with every record that we make, every tour that we go on, there is just this sense of... A, a quick sense of appreciation and accomplishment. Yes. But then, okay, what's next? How do we find that next thing? I don't think it's a glutton for punishment. I think, you know, <laughs> I think you guys tick that way mentally. I don't necessarily believe that people can be trained like, oh, you made it to the finish line. Some people just throw in the towel. Then they're like, I made it. I'm going to rest on the last three years because I was so good. Sure. But you guys go to the finish line, take a breath. And then you're like, let's get, let's get to the next one. Yes. And if you didn't tick that way, there's no way you would be here all these years later. I, I attribute it to that drive for sure. I mean, I think, you know, I jokingly say gluttons for punishment, but like we, we just love it. We really love it. Like I, I think there are some people who spend a bit of time in this industry and it's taxing and you burn out. It's easy to burn out. We've experienced burnout too, but kind of to what you said earlier, there are, there are ebbs and flows and we've learned to appreciate both the, the peaks and the valleys um, and kind of figured out a little bit how to navigate those things. And yeah, we just, we appreciate it. For those of you listening uh, we're in my guest bedroom at home, and on the center table is Tell Me I'm Alive, the ninth full-length all-time low vinyl. Yes. Is this the first time you've seen it in person? It sure is. Oh I, with, you know, manufacturing vinyl is such a thing these days. It takes months and months and months. Like, that's always one of the points of contention when we sit down to make a record and we have the label meetings and stuff. It's like, you know, it used to be you can deliver your record, the finished album, you know, about a 
a month or two out from like your release date, really, if it comes down to the wire. But now it's like, if you want to hit vinyl date, it's yeah. like, you got to be like six months out, four months out. Why does it always taken that long to make vinyl? No, there's a shortage. And sh- obviously then on top of like, you know, shipping and things like that, which are all facing their own individual issues at the moment. Like yeah. it's just, it takes longer and longer now. So yeah, this is, I was saying, this is the first time that I have actually seen the, the artwork blown up. And what vinyl. do you think? I'm, it's sick. It is. I always, I always design... <laughs> Like my input with, with artwork and, uh, that sort of the visual components always goes into the vinyl because these days, you know, with, with streaming being such a significant part of the way people consume music, your artwork's a tiny little thumbnail on whatever service you're using. So the artwork has such a small place as far as it goes, like digitally. So for me, it's like, it's not about the CD so much as it is the vinyl, um, and Do you so have like any thank yous in here, like that I think, sort of thing. So we actually went with, we, this time we, we, we digitized all of the text. So there is some like text and stuff in here, but it's minimal, but there's a QR code somewhere. And if you scan that, it takes you to like a digital booklet nice. with like videos and stuff. So all the thank yous are there, I think. Oh, cool. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's exciting to see it in person. It, it makes it real. Yeah. Like this is the first time when I've been like, oh yeah, it's a record. You guys did it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's out. I really ask you guys to Get the record or go online and start from the title track, Tell Me I'm Alive, which is song one on there. Yes. And you hear either the keyboard or piano going, dun, 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 and I'm like, okay, this feels like, is it okay if I say, it feels beatle in uh, the beginning. The Beatles is what I'm saying. Yes. Where are they, is it 0% inspiration? No. And, oh. The big time inspiration. Especially, oh, really? ironically, on that song, uh, we, we wrote that song and then immediately left the studio and went to the Paul McCartney show downtown. Um, so there was like, I think like Beatles were just on the brain that day. I, I knew we had a show coming up and we had just written, we had just written the first single for the album sleepwalking. And there was this sense of relief, uh, cast over the whole process where we kind of went like, Oh, we got, we got the one that we were searching for. Yeah. We were sort of doing a lot of soul searching at that part of the process, looking for that. What's the first thing people are going to hear. And when we got that song in sleepwalking, we sort of, breathed a sigh of relief. And then the next day went into this session going, ah, the pressure's kind of off. You know, we, we really, we got what we really needed and now we can kind of just have fun. And we knew we had, we were going to a show that night. We were like, yeah, who cares? And, and so we didn't take it all too seriously at first, but then we ended up happening upon this, this quirky little idea, uh, and wrote a song just about putting yourself through a brick wall to kind of like shake yourself into existence again. And the, the song was a, a bit jokey at first. We weren't really like taking it all that seriously in the moment, but then as the day went on and I kept coming back with this melody and then this lyric and then this idea. And, uh, suddenly like by the end of the session, we went, I think we might've just written like the title track, like the track one for the record. We just stumbled into it. And those are always the ones that feel the most special in my mind. The ones that kind of, you're sort of just serving as an antenna for something yeah, and then yeah, the idea yeah. sort of flows through you and there it is. And you kind of just feel like you were part of the process, not the process, if that makes sense. Um, and that was one of those songs and, and it kind of defined the whole album. So, and I love it. Thank by you. The way. Thank you. And what is track two? Track two is a song called modern love. I feel a similar vibe, not the exact same vibe, but I'm like, we all need to listen to albums. We don't have to listen to 10 or 12 songs straight through, but you got to go first four songs and then take take a break. So tell yeah. me about the second song because I'm like, oh, this is a perfect match to the first one. So Modern Love, I mean, they do, they sort of string together 
perfectly. Uh, yes. Same key. They kind of they kind of go run back to back. And and um, modern love is is sort of a meditation on on just that, like like finding your place and seeking out this idea, this idealized version of of love. That's what the character is dealing with in the song, uh, and and kind of coming up to face this reality that, that, that love doesn't work that way. It doesn't work the way we see it in, on the screen, so to speak. Right, right. Um, and it's so, it's a bit of a meditation on just like, first of all, the whole record really is a, is a kind of a meditation on loneliness and isolation, uh, in all of its different forms. And so modern love speaks to this longing for connection and romance and passion and, uh, essentially having to come to terms with the idea that like there's a lot of give and take in that. And it's not this ideal idyllic version of what the way people romanticize it to be. Right. Um, and that's where it landed. And, and at the end of the day, it's kind of all set to this fun sort of like, it feels like a bar song. You know what I mean? It feels like, like that piano line. I just sort of see, I visualize a bunch of people in like a little pub somewhere, just like grooving, like the scene out of Top Gun. <laughs> like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I see. <laughs> I love that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. But do you envision that after you write the song or while you're writing it? Bit of both. A bit of both. I mean, the the track, we started working on the music for that song first. And um, that was the feelings it was evoking. I was like, you know, it's a, it's got a bit of a party thing to it. And, uh, you know, then from there, the story develops and it becomes a different thing. But But I always, I find that I have a very visual and imaginative process to writing. Um I, I have sort of stepped a little bit more into working on our music videos now. And a big part of that was because I feel as though when I write a song, I see so much of a narrative along with it that could be visual. So, um, yeah, it's, it kind of happens during the process, I would say. Just going back quickly, this interview is about you, but I need 20 seconds. The Paul McCartney show was at a SoFi. Yeah. That day when Paul McCartney was driving the SoFi, he called me. You're kidding. Over the years, when he was doing shows, he would call a radio show when driving to the venue. My eyes are watering right now because That's, I can't. I so got he called us, Booker and I, Booker and Stryker, and he's like, hey, it's Paul McCartney. I'm like, come on. He's like, it's Paul McCartney. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, so while he's talking, I'm Googling his recent album. I'm like, what's the second line of your second song of your <laughs> album? Asking him, yes. Prove it. Yes. <laughs> and so he tells me, and oh it ended up God. really being him. And we had about a seven-minute chat. Un, no one was ready for it with Sir Paul McCartney. Your life. He was driving to what, his show. What is your life, Stryker? <laughs> that is so sick. I mean, ugh. is that wild, man? Yes, that is mind blowing. I got I'm you like, said that. I got chills. Yeah. Um, I mean, what a legend. What an absolute legend. Right. I uh, yeah. I, I as a as a writer and a creative force, I kind of you know I idolize Sir Paul, and as a fellow Brit. Right. So were you born in London? Uh, just outside, yeah. You're, so you're born just outside of London. Are your parents British then? They are. They, they are. Do they have British accents? They do. I So we moved to the States when I was seven, about seven. And so I oh, lost wow. my accent, you know, gradually over mm-hmm. those formative years because I wanted to fit in. And, uh, you know, oh. I, I think I got I got afraid that people would bully me for being different. And now I wish I held on to it because my, like, my wife always goes like, yeah, I wish you were English. <laughs> Way hotter. So, you can know. you bring the accent back at all? I can. I can turn it on every now and then, but it, it sounds a bit forced. Like it's some bastardization of 
That's all right. That was pretty good. I think I'm super attracted to you after that right now. Tell your wife to get the hell out of here. If I hang, if you get me drunk enough around my family, then I'm full Brit. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at seven years old, where do you move? Uh, We moved to Maryland. We came straight to Maryland and um, it was for my dad's job. And uh, so I just sort of like, you know, went with the flow as you do when you're seven. What what choice do I have? (laughs) But, um, but yeah, no, it was amazing. We, we got moved over and settled in and I, um, you know, kind of assimilated pretty quickly into, into life in Maryland. And, and by high school, that's when I met the other guys in the band. Um, we were all from Maryland. So, but that's tough even at seven years old to move that far to an entirely new place. Do you have brothers or sisters? I have two half sisters. Okay. And were they with you at the time? No. So they were quite a bit older and they were already sort of like settled and living okay. in England. So it didn't make sense for them to come with, but, um, yeah, we, it was, I mean, definitely it was, it was, you know, we were uprooted. And it was disruptive for all of us. I mean, there's definitely, you know, I, I put it lightly, but there was definitely an adjustment period for sure. Like you go from, you know, seven, you're sort of, you're just starting out in school. You're just sort of starting to make like real school friends and find this identity for yourself. And then to have it kind of upended at that moment was sort of like I had to start over. But at the same time, you're a kid. And I feel like kids are so elastic and so uh, able to kind of, rewire quickly. Yes. Um, and yes. so I, I did, you know, it was, it was the only life I knew. So it, it worked out. Before you met your bandmates, so you're seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 12 years old. Where did music come along? It was it always music. Did you play soccer? Did you play football, baseball? I, I was, I loved sports. I played soccer, football. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, I, I did play some sports, but I was pretty musically inclined uh, not in cert- not in terms of ability, but just like I loved music and there was always music on in the house. My dad uh, worked in hi-fi. Um, so we always had like the top of the line sort of home theater audio equipment because he, <laughs> nice. like, he was like he was like testing it. Did he allow it. you to, te- to play with it when I, he wasn't home? <laughs> I used to break his heart because when I was a baby, I would I would uh, I would walk up to the record player and I always wanted to play with the cartridge. Right. So I would always either like bend the needle in or just like break the cartridge somehow or like touch the sensor that you're not supposed yeah. to touch because it all looked so pretty and amazing. So I think my dad in my formative years sort of had a bit of a grudge uh, towards me for ruining so many of his record players. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but luckily he had access to replacement. Right. So, but there was, yeah, I mean, my memories of like, even in England, there was always music on always. Um, the Beatles were a huge one. My mom loves Elvis. So Elvis was always playing, um, you know, Pink Floyd, Genesis, uh, there were, you know, just sort of the Brit staples were very formative, um, bands for me growing up. And I sort of, uh, that was, I think, was ingrained into me from a young age. Like I, I knew Eleanor Rigby when, you know, I could sing right. Eleanor Rigby when I was five, that wow. kind of thing. So, yeah, it was wow. a, not well, but like, but, but I just, I loved it. I loved it so much. And so, then at what age did you, did you learn guitar or did you just, I had to like, take official lessons? Yeah. I had like three, three forays with guitar. I'm a super like, I, I didn't know this till later in life, but I, I, um, I have ADHD okay. and, uh, I had a very hard time staying focused on tasks and finding like when I would pick up a hobby, I was always driven to like, want to do a new thing, an exciting thing. Cause that's, you know, that's how it works. Uh, but then like staying consistent with it was a problem for me. Um, so, you know, I think I first pick up, picked up a guitar six or seven and started learning the basics, um, got bored of it, put it down wanted to play piano, saxophone. Like I remember through my growing up, I remember like my parents and my my lovely parents so kind to just 
always try to indulge in like any passion I had. So, you know, when I would put down an instrument and be like, no, I want to do violin now. No, I want to do this now. I want to do this. Like my mom was always like, all right, let's go to the secondhand music shop and find you a saxophone, you weirdo. Um, and then I'd play it for five minutes and put it down and be like, no, I want to do guitar again. You know, there was like, it was just, that's how it was. But I knew the music was there. I just didn't, I needed to find my vessel and a way to channel it. And so Moved to the States, started taking guitar lessons again, got really bored with that because I didn't, you know, the teacher at the time wanted to teach me theory and classical Ugh. picking and I just got bored. I got right. bored and I, I I wasn't learning songs and all I wanted to do was play songs. Like I, I remember in that second class, the, the, mo- like the most rewarding thing I ever found was he taught me like a riff from a Michael Jackson song. And I just was like, oh my gosh, I can play something. Yes. It's not me just going, da, 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 da. Yeah. I was like, this is familiar. This is cool. Uh, And then we stopped learning songs and I stopped caring. So it was my third guitar teacher. Shout out, Brian. Um, I was probably 13 or 12, picked up a guitar for the third time, Mm -hmm. went in and was, you know, at that point, a little more self-aware and a little more confident to speak on my own behalf and just went, listen, Brian. I don't want to learn scales yet. I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't, I just want to be able to play some songs that I like. Yes. And so, you know, he took that to heart and was like, okay, here's how you play a G. Here's how you play a C here. Oh, and his biggest mistake, he taught me how to play a power chord, which you can just move up and down the neck and then you can learn to play anything. (laughs) So, uh, at that point it was game over as far as me becoming a phenomenally talented classical guitar player that was out the window. (laughs) But I could play brain stew. Uh, wait, and was that the fir- what was the first song that you learned with Brian? I think it was brain stew. It, what? Yeah. He went, okay, you like Green Day? This is this is a pretty straightforward one. Just walk down the neck. And I went, I'm doing it. And it was, you know, Game light, light speed from there. It was like, I, you know, I think the next song I learned was like Master of Puppets or something. <laughs> it's like, I was at home just going like, it all makes sense now. That's yeah. so exciting. Yeah, it was okay. it was a good moment. So, when do you meet uh Jack? When do you meet Ryan? Uh, Zach, like where when do these guys pop up in your world? Yeah, I guess it was it would have been shortly after that. I mean, um around that time would have been I was in like 7th grade, 8th grade. Um I switched schools and I I uh I was I was in a a private school in Maryland and I just didn't vibe with it and it was I I stopped wanting to be in that scene and um, switched to a different high school and Jack was one of the first kids I noticed cause he had like bleach blonde hair and like a shirt that said like, tell your mom, I said, thanks. There's like something he shouldn't have been wearing in eighth grade. Like a, like a, one of those crappy, like Spencer's gifts. Yes. Shirts. Yeah. That I think like, if I remember correctly, the same day I met him was the same day he got in trouble for wearing a t-shirt and had to turn it inside out in the principal's <laughs> office, like no joke. And so, uh, yeah, I was like that kid, that kid seems interesting and, um, was just like the polar opposite of everything I was used to coming from this private school where yeah. everything was like trying to be a little bit prim and proper. Uh, and I, I identified way more with the vibes that he was throwing out. And so Jack and I just immediately formed this relationship and this bond that was like, you know, I can see us just getting into some tomfoolery for the rest of our lives. (laughs) Little did we know. Um, And, you know, we bonded over liking the same music. We bonded over Green Day and um, Blink-182 and The Offspring and um, Foo Fighters and Nirvana. And and it was like, we were both just starting to learn guitar. I think at the time he had a broken arm. So his arm was in a cast. And I remember going to his house 
for the first time. And he's like, bring your guitar over, bring your amp, like that whole thing, and we'll jam together. <laughs> and I get to his house, and he he was learning to play guitar upside down because he couldn't hold his guitar. Oh. He, he had a cast on, so he was literally like playing like this. He would lay it on <laughs> his lap and play it like a lap steel almost. <laughs> and that was, yeah. So you can, it explains a lot. Right. Uh, no, um, no. And it's so it's like, that's my first memory of jamming with him. And I think it was brain stew. I think like, cause he could walk his hand down the neck right. with a cast on. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was kind of game over from there. You know, that was, that was our last year of middle school. And then we, we moved over to this high school that combined two of the local middle schools, getting into serious Baltimore school dynamics here. Yeah. And um, at that point we met Ryan. Ryan uh, was already a really good drummer, like well ahead of where most drummers were at that age. Um, and by that, I mean, he could play like roller coaster by blink. Wow. So, so we were, um, yeah. you know, and we, uh, Jack being the very like driven and excitable person that he is, um, was like, we all got to get together. We got to jam. This is a band. We're almost a band. And I had been playing, I had been playing music with some other kids in this, in a different band. And Jack sort of went like, you don't need them. You don't need them. We got a drummer now. And, uh, so we, we all started playing. We, we met Zach through a mutual friend. He went to a different high school, but, but he came in and like showed up with a, like one of the cooler bases I've ever seen. I think it was like a BC rich. It was shaped amazing. And it like played with his fingers. So we were like, this guy knows what he's doing. Yeah. And, uh, and also I think we played one song then went outside and he like, he had brought his skateboard and was like, ripping all these sick skateboard tricks <laughs> and none of us were really that good on skateboards. Yeah. So we were like, I mean, this dude takes our cool factor way up. Right. Like he, yes. That's what we needed to round it out. And uh, yeah, that was the band. It, it formed them. We didn't have a name yet, but the picture you just painted is the best picture that I've heard painted about you guys <laughs> forming the band. That was awesome. And I do want to go to the band name, All Time Low. Yes. Because over the years, we say band names. Uh, My Chemical Romance, The Killers, The Stroke, Some 41, All Time Low. All Time Low band name is such a good band name, really? by the way. Do you think so? Yes. That's awesome. I've been putting the stress on the wrong word. <laughs> it's not. It's All Time Low. All Time Low. Right. I've been saying All Time Low. It's All Time Low. All Time Low. Or all time. We could, we could go time. Yes. We go up on that. Yeah. And I've never asked once in any of these interviews about a band name, but I'm going to do one now. And yeah. It's a great question. Who came up with the band name? Okay. So I can't, I don't know who to credit exactly with who came up with it. We had a list basically of like five or six not great band names. Do you remember any of those? Never Wreck was one of them. Okay. Um, I want to say maybe we Centerfold. <laughs> And my mom was like, no, like ban banished that one. Hey, National Geographic has a map for their centerfold. And that's what we were. That's what we meant. Of course. Yeah. Um, so it was just, it was a list of, of not great band names and, and all time low made it on there. Um, we, we were listening to, uh, it, we pulled it from a newfound glory song. Bruised and broken at an all-time low. She writes. Yeah. Right. And so we were like, that's kind of cool. And I don't think it's been used yet. And, um, you know, this was, again, before streaming and, and all that. So, like, we we had no idea if someone had actually laid claim to it or not. But now you can just type <laughs> it in a search engine and it's like, boom, everyone has taken it. But, uh, but no, in this case, we, you know, it, it seemed like it was uh, available. And the main thing was that we had a show. We had finally managed to get a show, um, a, a local promoter in Baltimore who we've worked with for years. His name is Paul Manna. And, uh, he basically was one of the first people to give us a real shot 
uh, outside of sort of the self-booked, like begging to play a VFW hall, like he ran real venues and booked real venues. And we had kind of established that we could sell a pretty decent handful of tickets for like a, some amazing. punk kids in a high school. Like we, in high school, 11th or 12th grade range? Th- this is ninth grade. Ninth this is like freshman grade. year. Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. This is freshman year. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, like we, you know, we were able to like, you know, pull 150 people to a show. And, uh, you know, it was mostly our friends and, and people that just wanted something Still. to do on the weekends. But, um, you know, that was enough to kind of pad out these shows that needed that little boost to sell out for some of these national acts at these venues. Um, you know, 800 cap venue kind of thing. And uh, so Paul was kind of like, whatever, I'm gonna give these kids a chance. Let's see what they do. And so we started getting these opportunities to open for some legit national acts. And, and one of the first ones was basically, he's like, well, what do I print on the ticket? What's your band name? And we just kind of went, Oh, we haven't thought about that yet. (laughs) So we, we just, we picked all time low and told him all time low. And then that got printed on a ticket. And we were like, I guess that's the band name now. Great name. Made it official. Who are some of those bands when you're in ninth grade Yeah, that this gentleman said, come open up. I'm trying to think now. Um, there was a tour that came through, you know, that was the, that was the era of like drive through records oh, and yeah. the, uh, the, the big East coast influx of like pop punk and, and, uh, punk bands and, you know, the taking back Sundays, the My Chemical Romances of, of that era. And, um, so there was a band called the early November that we loved, we looked up to and, and, um, they were like newly signed out of New Jersey and, uh, they were playing the, it was maybe auto bar. And uh, we got thrown on as an opener for that. And we were so excited. And I I remember like some of these shows, we weren't even old enough to stay in the venue after we played. It was like, because they'd be, you know, they'd be 18 plus shows or or 21 and up venues. And, you know, we'd do our set. And then like the the venue manager would come up and be like, okay, thanks. And we'd be like, what, we can't hang out and watch the band? And they're like, nope, absolutely not. So we'd just like stand outside. And like play our music for, for people. Um, it was, it was that kind of thing. Like we were, we were just so like excited to be there and be part of it, but you know, um, yeah. So there was, there was early November. There was, uh, who else? I mean, these were one-offs in the Baltimore area. Yeah, This so, wasn't like, Hey, you're going to go do 30 dates with someone. You no. guys are 15 years old at the time. Yeah. We were playing a show on a Saturday, doing our homework on Sunday and going back to school. A question about the parents of the four of you. Mm-hmm. Were any of them concerned about like, what are you guys yes. doing? What is, oh, they were. Okay. Uh, I say that, but, but I don't mean like, oh, you're not going to do this, but you know, Incubus has been in here and like Brandon got his license and he's driving all his idiot bandmates who I love, you know, around the city in his car. And yeah. it's like, you know, going to these venues, but for you guys, you weren't even driving yet. Yeah. What were your folks saying? I mean, they were the ones taking us to some of these shows, to be fair. I mean, like Zach's, Zach's parents' van was, oh. was like, that's how we fit the drums. Amazing. <laughs> so they were, yeah, they were, they were so supportive and, and um, truly have been throughout our entire careers. Like our, I, I attribute a lot to the faith our families put in us to actually take a swing at this. Like fast forward a little bit when we, when we got to signing a record deal and stuff, we were still two of our guys weren't old enough to sign on their own behalf. Like their parents had to sign on. Cause they were 17. Contract. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, there was obviously some, there were moments where I think concern for whether or not we were taking the right path in life obviously came up, you know, it was like, cause it's so ingrained in you at that age. It's like, no, you, you go to college, 
Right. You know, you, why aren't you guys doing college visits? You know, that kind of thing. And like, yeah. we were visiting labels, no joke. Like we, we used to, I remember junior year spring break or we went out to Chicago to showcase for victory records and they said no, but <laughs> victory said no, they passed. Was they this passed. before the party scene came out? I think so. We had like an EP maybe, and we were writing some of the party scene. I, I'm, I might be getting that wrong. Party scene is the first full length yes. all time low released. album. Yeah. yeah. Self-released still in high school. It was the first thing we kind of put out. And yeah, I mean, it, we may have had that, that, but either way um, you but, were looking for a, bit, a deal. Yeah. Victory said, come to Chicago, play for us. Did you do it in an office or at a venue there? The dead of winter. Um, <laughs> so it was terrible. So cold. I remember oh, I getting, need to sip this. Go on. Yeah, go. no, it was the dead of winter. I remember getting out of the van and just being like, it might've been my first time in Chicago and uh, like just being so nervous and going into this venue and we had never done anything like this before. We set up, we, we, we play, there were maybe 12 people there from the label. So it's like a, a proper venue with 12 people standing in front of you, which if you're, you know, once you get into that circuit, this was a normal thing showcasing back then. It's, it's a little less so now, but like your first one is terrifying. And, uh, 12 people just watching you guys play. Yeah. And no oh, one's like, no one's having a good time. Everyone there's, they're standing, sure. staring at you, you know, just <laughs> <laughs> completely like emotionless. And <laughs> our show was so at, at that point, our show was so based on like crowd interaction. And so like, I get up there, how's everyone doing? <laughs> crickets, you know, oh, I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but like, I remember that someone from that label, <laughs> what they said to us stuck with me. They, they, he, they, they walked up and we were about to play and they go, okay, I'm sure you have plenty of songs. Just play, play us like the two good ones. It was, it was literally something to that effect. It was like, I know you guys have plenty of songs. Just play us a couple good ones. We were like deadpan like that mm -hmm. when they said it. Mm -hmm. We were like, I turned around. I was like, okay guys, play the good ones. <laughs> Do you, remember, know. do you remember the good ones? Uh, <laughs> I, I think, no, no, I don't know if there were any good ones at that time. Clearly not. Cause no. we didn't get the deal. Now we, we had a, we, I, we definitely played the party scene, the title track of that record. Cause we, we all felt like that was the one yeah. at the time. Um, and Oh God, I remember like, we were so bad. I mean, we were looking no, back. You weren't. you weren't bad. We were, we were kids playing, learning how to play music. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was just about being loud and fast. That's what it was. And so like, from an outside perspective, looking back, I could see it being like, wow, these kids are unpolished. Like they're not ready. And to be fair, like I'm glad it went the way it did because that was a real lesson that we needed to learn. Like we, we had something, there's no doubt. We had the energy, we had the drive, we could write some songs. I don't know if they were great songs yet, but they were on the way to being something. And, but we were so unpolished and, and clumsy. We were like, you know, like when an, when you see a giraffe that's just been born and yeah, it's like right. learning yeah, to yeah. walk, just gangly. And uh, that's, that was the stage that we were at. We needed to be told no, I think, you know, and it, and it, it helped, you know, we felt, we felt sad and, and begrudging at the time being like, how could they say no? But, but we weren't ready. We weren't there. And uh, it was, it was a lesson learned. So we, we packed up our things and drove back to Maryland. Wow. Before we get to you uh, signing with Hopeless, mm -hmm. there's a thought that I had now that I've been thinking about over about the last 15 years or so. The great high school athletes and junior high athletes have travel teams these days, and their parents are going from, if they live in LA, going to San Francisco for a tournament. I don't know if that happens as much for the talented 15-year-old bands right. or 
club DJs or whatever the 15 year old wants to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are the arts, if it's a rock band, not given the same serious attention that a great athlete would get at 15? Because there's no music program in schools. And that's heartbreaking. Um, but it's, I mean, think about the importance placed on sports within the system that is those schools. You know, I mean, it's like the, the, that doesn't exist in music, whether any genre, really. I mean, that it was, we, again, we were fortunate because it was completely up to our families and our parents. Correct. We were right. really lucky yeah. that we were in a, in a place where our parents were like, we'll take you to Chicago. Sure. Which was, I mean, looking back on it, I'm like, that's wild that they were willing to do that, you know? But I think they they saw our drive and they knew that that was something that was really important to us. And we had, frankly, like I didn't, at that point, I had decided like, I don't want to play sports. I don't want, I don't know if college is the right thing for me yet. You know, but this thing was so clear to me. That was, wow. that was, I think what wow. made the difference was I was so resolute in knowing that music was my future and what I wanted. Um, and I think while it's very hard sometimes to, for onlookers to kind of accept that and swallow that pill and be like, okay, this is their journey. That was the choice that we all ultimately had to come around to. Um, and it was, yeah, it was back to your original, like there, you asked about how, if our parents were kind of thrown by it, it's like, there was, there was definitely some contention and kind of not, not sure if that was the right thing to pursue. But eventually I think it just got to the point where it's like, this is undeniable. Like they're so driven to this. And we were young enough to where like, if it didn't work out, there's the other options are still out there. The other roads are still there. But, um, no, we just, I was so sure. I was so sure at at that age for you. I was like, this is all I care about. It's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Foolhardy maybe, but it was, you know, I put my eggs in one basket and that's that. You have the drive and the skill and you have these bandmates who have it too. And when you got the uber talent mixed all together, it's just the good things are going to happen. I'm so happy for you. Gotta you got to swing. You got to swing. You have to swing. So Victory, who we all love. Yes. They said no. Yes, they passed. Which was good for you, as you said. So... What album two is getting ready to be made or it's not ready to be made. When does hopeless come along? So, so wrong. It's right. Is album number two. Yes. We, we, it was our senior year and we had already, oh we, God. yeah, crazy. We've been speaking to a few other labels. Um, we, I remember we went down to Florida and showcased for fueled by ramen. Um, John Janik was there at the time running that label, who is an amazing, amazing person brain within yes. this music industry. And, yes. um, they also passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was like, they had but just it comes full circle. We'll get to oh, that. Yeah. Soon yeah. yeah. So we'll, they, yeah. they ended okay. up passing, which again, you know, don't no grudges there. Yeah. Just wasn't the right time. They had just signed another band and it was like, it's, that band from Washington, right? Yes. Uh, it was, I think they had just signed cute is what we aim for. And they were, oh, like, that's I think it signed. was, I think oh, it was cute okay. is what we aim for. Oh, and wow. it was kind of like, we just, we're not going to take two projects on <laughs> and like risk messing one of these up mm. and they went on to do a phenomenal job with cute. Right. Um, so yeah, they, they, but there was, there was enough label attention at that point. And we had also caught the eye of um, the producer, Matt Squire, who was a Maryland based guy had done panic at the discos first record uh, receiving into sirens was working on the cute is what we aim for record. And because we were sort of in that conversation with fueled by and, and Matt had taken notice and I think was kind of rooting for us because we were a Maryland band and um, Matt, Matt just kind of like took us under his wing in, in the sense of like, when there is music to be recorded, I'm your guy. And things, things kind of blur a little bit because we, we signed, we ended up signing with hopeless records that that was ultimately the label that decided to take it on. And, and the 
plan at that time was, okay, take some of the songs that you had already put out on your self-release full length. We, we actually put our foot down pretty strongly that we also wanted to write some new music. Um, cause the out, like, you know, in a label's mind, they were like, you have an album of songs. No one's heard those songs. We right. can get those songs in front of people. Why not just use the material you put out in our like brash, you know, young band mentality. We we're like, no, that's old, old news. Like we need new songs. So we, we compromised and but we, it's smart. I don't think that's brash. That's the intelligent thing to say. Sure. As you go from a 15 year old to 17, your brain is 50% different. Your tastes have changed. You yeah. look back like, ooh, maybe that wasn't that good. Sure. We know how to do it better now. So anyway, good move. Continue. Thank you. Yes. I need, I need you like to just hype me up. <laughs> um, yeah. And so like we, we compromised on being like, all right, we're going to write a couple new ones. We'll re-record some of these old ones. Yeah. And we put an EP together and we put that out with hopeless records. That's the contract that, you know, I was 18. Ryan was 18. The other two boys were 17. Our parents were there at the signing. <laughs> the boys and your men at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, and, and yeah, we, we got the EP out. They threw us immediately on Warp Tour and just said, go learn. Go learn from the greats. Like, oh my and, God, who yeah. was there on that Warp Tour? Do you remember some of the bands? Um, I want to say... I feel like it was a lot of, at the time, the, what we considered like the veterans of Warped Tour, the staple acts, like the, the no effects, the less than Jake's, the, oh boy. and we, we, it was so rad because we thought here we are, these, these young kids who like are just kind of coming in and pissing everybody off. But it was the veteran bands that actually ended up kind of taking us under their wing and being like, here's how this works kids, you know? And it was very, very cool to be embraced by some of these guys that we just idolized, you know what I mean? Like, cause there were, I think that first year it was maybe like Mike Hem on the main stage and oh. these bands that felt larger than life to us. And then beyond that, these bands that we like grew up listening to. So, you know, before there was Mike Hem, there was the no FXs and, and those bands and, so and fat Mike is out there. You're seeing him yeah, all the time. And like we, you know, we based at the time we'd like based some of our stupid stage banner on what they did, you know, the, the, <laughs> the that brash crude lewd, whatever you want to call it. Like we, we grew up on that kind of punk rock, that brand of punk rock. And like, right. so we were emulating them and then we got on tour with them and went like, Oh God, like, what do we do? So yeah, it was, it was cool. They, we were treated so nicely is what I would say on, on that tour. That's so good when we to didn't, hear. No one so needed to us hear. to treat us nicely, but we were right. really like taken under a lot of people's wings and, and cool. uh, it was, it was cool. I don't know if you've done five warp tours. I know, I remember at least five. Yeah. How important overall, not just that first one was warp tour to all time low as a band. We would not be what we are now without warp tour it was, it was instrumental in our formative years and not formative in the sense of like starting the band, but when we became a real touring band, that was the cornerstone I would say of, of our touring, um, a summer out there, not only were you almost required to be competitive, to stand out among this absolute circus of the 45 to 60 bands that were playing every day, yeah. you had to do things that made you stand out. We would, we saw other bands getting up at the crack of dawn and going with CD players and standing, walking the line and playing music for people and trying to sling your CDs that way. Like five bucks. No, four bucks. No, three bucks. It's like, okay, well we have to hit two because it costs us money to have these things. <laughs> but like literally that, like we were going and what we would, we would write our set time on a piece of cardboard 
And we would walk the line telling people all time low Ernie Ball stage at noon, right when doors open, like that kind of thing. And then have people listen to our music and try to get them to buy an EP or a CD. And uh, it was about that hustle. And that is what I think that was the first time we learned like, okay, it really takes a lot to stand out. There's so right. much good music and so yes. many people doing it well. And what do we need to do to carve out our own little space? And sure enough, as we did more and more of that, we noticed our crowds on the warp tour at these, on these little side stages, getting incrementally bigger and bigger. And, you know, 28 people first time, 60 people the next day, right? 80 people, hundred people. And then sure enough, like when you're playing the Kevin says stage, which is like one of the smaller stages on the warp tour at the time. And there's a for thousand Kevin Lyman. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was like Kevin, that stage existed props to Kevin for this. That stage existed so that Kevin could handpick new up and coming acts and place them and be like, I want to give this band a shot. Yeah. Yeah. And he did, he gave us a shot. You know, we were there, we would, we would show up early and help build the stage. Cause we just wanted to show how like we, we're here to do this. Like give yeah, us our, no, give us our chance. And, uh, we, um, yeah, we know like when, when you have a thousand people coming to watch you on the Kevin says stage, like, I think that's when people started to go, Oh, there's something here. And by the end of that year, you know, I think then they'd moved us to like the Ernie ball stage or like the Hurley stage, which was a little bit of a more established stage with a built in bigger crowd. And, um, yeah, that it, it just showed us you got to compete to stand out. So important what you just said in everything in life. Nothing, it doesn't matter what famous athlete or musician, no. nothing is handed to anybody. No. You have to work for you it. You can be the best at With something. With people not even knowing that you're working. It's like right. when they're doing this other thing, you're out there getting up early and doing the cardboard and the seat. I mean, good, again, good good for you. I feel so enthused hearing uh, all this from you. Yeah, it was, it was important. It was so important. And it was the ethos of a lot of the bands on the Warp Tour that taught us that. I mean, there were so many people that spoke to this takes hard work. You're not just going to fit in here and, and automatically have it <laughs> right. handed to you. Like you got to, you got to make something of it yeah. with the opportunity. And, and we just, we embraced that and we said, okay, heads down, let's do it. And uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of worked. Dear Maria, count me in. That was written specifically for your second album. Yeah. Uh, that- first, first album. So we put this EP out and then we went and made the full length. So wrong. It's right. And that, uh, that was one of the songs on that record. We did that in Maryland with Matt Squire and, um, would you guys think of the song as it was being formed? It was just one of your all songs or do you like, yeah. Oh, this one, we love it this was, one. It was, it was the, it was one of the tracks on the album. You know what I mean? Like we, we didn't, we didn't think in terms of singles and things at the time we were just making music. And, and above that, we also felt like six feet under the stars was the single. Mm. That was the first song we put out from that record, I believe. And the first video and, and, uh, that was the one that we were like, yeah, this is the one. And we, I think Dear Maria was maybe the second single from that record. And, um, you know, it did, it did well for us at the time, but that's how I heard of you. Yeah. It wasn't from Warp Tour. That it was from that song really came across my radar. Okay. I'm like, Oh, all time low. Yeah. Okay. That was my first introduction to that's so who funny. the hell are these guys? <laughs> yep. That sounds about right. I think a lot of people were asking that question it, at that in time. In a good way. It was great. Sure. And what I loved this is not get off my lawn, I swear, but I loved hearing music and not being able to find out what they look like right away. Sure. Or knowing every piece of information because mm-hmm. I, you know, you get the pictures in your mind. Like when I was on the radio, no one had any clue what I looked like for years because I just, you know, no social media, no nothing, no pictures out there. Right. It's like, here's a voice. What does this face for radio look like? Iconic out there? voice. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, where am I again? Okay. So 
you put out the second album and it does really, really well, but there's not a ton of radio play, if any. No. MTV may be giving you a little bit of love, I think. That's yep. that that's what I remember. Yeah. Is your label supportive and enthusiastic? And are you guys feeling good as a group? Yes. I mean, you know, we it, Hopeless Records is an independent label. And so with that comes a very DIY mentality and it fit. Like the way we wanted to operate fit the way that they operated. And um you know, I think we were having breakthroughs together when we would let, they, they worked their butts off for us. They really did. And when we would get some look on, like a look on MTV or, or a station would spin our song or, or anything like that. Um, it was a big win for everyone. It was like, oh, we're making some waves here. We're making some noise because it's, it's, it's tough for independent labels. You know, they, they, they don't necessarily always have the infrastructure to facilitate big marketing campaigns that tap into the mainstream, like radio and television. And, you know, so those, when you do get those looks, it's almost like we really did this. Like this isn't coming from something that is a system that has this established and knows how this right. works and navigates it every single album. And you're a big fish in their eyes to the independent label. Sure. At the, at the time we weren't, but, but we were, we were sort of, it felt like we were sort of coming up together. I mean, Hopeless had already had several success stories you know, they had Avenged Sevenfold thrice. They had these other bands that went on and, and, and upstream to major deals. And, and, you know, they, they had grown several big bands. And so they knew what they were doing, but for it to connect and happen again is always a win. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I remember, we just felt like we were sort of scratching the surface of something, but I think when you're in it, we weren't as aware what what was happening. We we were happy people were coming to the shows. We were really happy that we were getting, you know, bigger tours and doing magazine shoots and getting, you know, covers of alt press and things like that. But it didn't really register to us that, that it was growing. It was just kind of like, we're in it and we're having fun. Good. Um, Maybe that's yeah. a good thing that you guys didn't know how big it was on the outside. Cause you keep the eye of the tiger, you keep yeah. the chip on your shoulder and you're fighting for every new person that likes the band. Exactly. I think, I think it very much was a good thing. I, I, we, had we been more aware of it, that's when I think you can get caught up in the, like either the lofty aspirations or you just get a little heady about things and start overthinking, which we didn't, which I, which benefited us. Right. But the albums like nothing personal debuts in the top 10, and then Dirty Laundry after that debuts pretty high. But can you please tell me about what happens between those two albums mm. going to Interscope Records? And we love Interscope Records. Yeah. They've got a huge roster of people. But what was the thought process with you and the guys going to the big that big label? Sure. So at that point... Is that okay that I'm asking this? Yeah, of course. Okay. Of okay. course. Happy to talk about it. At, at that point, we'd, we'd put out So Wrong It's Right. We'd put out Nothing Personal. Nothing Personal made some splashes again, like damned if I do, you got some radio play. That was like our first sort of mm. really getting a little bit, um, minimal, but there, and you know, we got a tour with fallout boy out of that record and like things were just starting to really click. Um, it felt like when it came time to make the third album, we, we sort of were recognizing that perhaps there was a ceiling, uh, that, that we had reached and we really wanted this sort of this, this moment to have a chance at, the MTVs and radio and, and, and this is no slight against hopeless records. It's just different, uh, the different companies operating in different ways. It just felt like the major label system was more suited for that. And right. was, we were ready for it. Yeah. Um, and so we, we spent, as we were making the beginnings of this third record, we were figuring out how to upstream over to a label and Interscope was the one that got that done. 
And um, we were with a great team. I mean, we, we signed with an A&R, uh, Luke Wood, and um, Luke was sort of right-hand man at the time to Jimmy Iovine. And so we were, we were in with the right people having the right conversations and Jimmy was invested and, and um, you know, which is at the time, I don't think I, it registered just how legendary Jimmy right. is, you we, know, it's crazy. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so it's like the fact <laughs> that he was even taking meetings with us and had the time of day is says, you know, says something that at the time I just, I had no idea. And then looking back, I'm like, Oh man, <laughs> he like spent a little time on us. That's really cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we, we, we made this record and, um, the blind side came, uh, in an unexpected form and it was really just poor, like bad timing. We, we had signed to the label and as we delivered this record shortly after getting on the road and starting to promote it, uh, Jimmy sort of refocused and beats came out and beats was this, you know, as at the time, this massive, massive enterprise. And, and Jimmy, that's where he saw the future. And, he he moved over to Beats, taking Luke Wood with him. Oh. So our A and R, unfortunately, just disappeared, and not his and when fault. When you say A and R for everybody, artist and repertoire is what yes. it stands for. And yes. this is the guy, the person that has your back at a label. Yeah, that is like he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure you get to where you need to go. Exactly. And now he goes with Jimmy, and then what happens with you guys? We had a great team over there. Um, but you know, when you lose your quarterback or the person that's sort of like quarterbacking the project, uh, it's very easy to get lost in the mix of a massive label like Interscope. And so, you know, they, we were reappointed new team members and they all did as well as they could having not started the project. But it, it just sort of became this thing where like the, the swings that we took didn't quite hit the way we'd hoped for. And the team that we ended up with didn't fully, I think, get the project or, or at least they weren't there from the inception. And therefore, how could you get it? Right. Um, I think everybody right. did their best, but it just sort of didn't land. And so touring wise, we were great. We were in a really good position and the numbers were awesome and our shows were getting bigger. But all of those ambitious swings that we had hoped to take just sort of didn't manifest the way we wanted. God. Yeah. It was like, ah, ah. and, um, you know, it, it became, it became sort of a dark horse record at the time. Like we, we, yeah. Feldman on there. You had Rivers Cuomo yeah. on there. Butch Walker was co-riding some of the, it right? is a phenomenal album. It like, is. I, uh, I think it's a great, great album. Thank you. Yes. Of I, course. I like there is, there's this confusion sometimes when we speak to dirty work, because I think within our fan base, did I call it dirty laundry? Yes, but that is a song, so it's all good. Oh, okay. So I, I, yeah, we, okay. we caught up. Yeah, yeah. Dirty okay. Work is the album. Dirty <laughs> yeah. Laundry is a song that came a little bit later. Yeah, but well, yeah. <laughs> I, it was confusing. A lot of titles to remember. Um, when you have nine records, <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, I get I get a little lost, too. Dirty Work is Interscope. Yeah, I dirty love work. Dirty Work, and I just, I, of course, I know who's on the, okay, yeah, all right, here we yeah, go. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was. it's just one of those things where I think the perception of that record, because it, we put it, you know, we pushed some singles that were different for us. It was the first time we had really bucked the trend. And obviously when you do that, there's always a, a groundswell of like, this isn't my band. This isn't what I wanted. And, and so there was a bit of that getting thrown around plus the, the inner turmoil that was happening with us and the label uh, really to no one's fault, but just, it was just the situation. And I think that record gets sort of perceived as like a, like a, a bad time for us. Um, and it, it really wasn't like the, Again, I, you know, I probably wouldn't, would have chosen to push different singles looking back. If you, if hindsight being 2020, what single would you have gone with? Oh, uh, so the, the song, do you want me dead on that 
record would have probably been the first song we would have put out. And then I think straight into Time Bomb. Okay. Instead, we went with a super fun song that I wrote with Rivers. And Rivers originally was was going to be on the song, but just timing didn't work out. And I think it, it, the song is called I Feel Like Dancing. And it's very tongue in cheek, very sarcastic. And it was sort of maybe a little bit of us rebelling against this idea of like, we need a single. So we sort of wrote this, like, here's your single. I gotcha. And, and I like gotcha. everyone was sort of in on it and including rivers. And then like when he wasn't able to do the feature, it kind of like, I think the joke of it or the, the, the wink of it got glossed over by a lot of people. And, and so the perception was just like, they made this strange pop song about dancing and from the world that we were in, it just, it kind of just got misinterpreted for something that it wasn't. And, um, so we found ourselves sort of having to course correct a little bit, not in, not creatively, because again, people were coming to the shows and singing the hell out of it, right, but right. just in the, the, the grand sense of how people perceive a band. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, um, fortunately we're really lucky in that people at the label at the time were very understanding of the situation. And, and you don't always hear these kinds of success stories like these can oftentimes lead to bands getting put on the shelf, so to speak. Um, and you sort of just stagnate there, but you can't get out of your contract. But in this case, we, we went back to the label and just said, look, like this isn't what we signed up for. I don't think it's what you signed up for. Can we all just walk away? And I thought it was really cool of, of the folks at Interscope at the time to be like, yeah, like handshake, let's just call it. That is nice. Cause you're right. Some of those things can go totally sideways. Yeah. And you're stuck in a four record deal, but you, you only put out one record and it's like those, those artists just disappear. It's a really sad situation that can happen to so many and does happen to so many. And, uh, you know, I give a lot of props to the team that we had at the time for kind of being down to just let everybody walk away clean and, uh, put us in a position to kind of refocus and go, okay, how do we course correct? How do we get ourselves back on the track after this little hiccup? Before you get back on the track, what I feel is like the patience the four of you had. And if you didn't have that sort of patience and resilience at that time, I think you guys could have gone off the deep end. Was yeah. there ever a get together between the four of you going, we're going to be fine. This is nothing. Look how many people come to our shows. Look what other bands say about us. Everything's A-OK. Did you have a meeting or anything like that? We had to. I mean, we had several conversations like that. You know, I think there was, there was a lot of, this isn't as big as it feels. You know what I mean? I think you can trick yourself so often into convincing yourself that this storm is the one that's going to end it or, or be too much to get through. But there is, there is always that glimmer of hope, I think. And there's always that next thing to, to strive towards. And I think, again, that's always been a weird principle, not a weird principle, but, but, a uh, an unspoken unknown principle, um, for us at the core of things. And it was that, that realization of, yeah, there's still people here. There's still people that come to our shows and right. people care. Yeah. We just need to make music for them. That's all we need to focus on. And that was the mission. That was the next task. And the best band title to come after. <laughs> Don't panic. Guys. Yeah. yeah. Don't panic. So here you go. The confidence there, the album like debuts in the top 10. I remember that. And so things are going good. You guys have to be feeling wonderful. And what I think one of the greatest traits about All Time Low is, whether it's four records in or nine, you still feel fresh to me. Thank you. And did you guys feel a refresh rebirth when you put out Don't Panic? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, there was an undeniable energy with the music and the, the, 
the task that was at hand and, you know, the, the title of the record, you know, just, just sort of, it was a declaration to everyone, right? Hey, we're not freaking out. No need. Let's just, (laughs) let's just get down to business. And so we made, we, we, we put all our energy into making a, I don't want to say return to form because that's such a boring way to describe something, but, but we just, we, we went back to what we felt was so special about all time low to begin with, which was loud guitars, riffs, energy. Yes. Just let's, let's plow ahead. And, um, that mentality bled through into the music and we made a bunch of fast songs and a bunch of anthemic songs and re-signed with hopeless records and, um, hit the ground running. We are one hour into this. I love and I'm it. like, I, if anyone is still watching, we're only halfway today, through the career. I mean, there are so, <laughs> can we do like 10 more minutes? Yeah, of course. Okay. Cause there's other things I want to ask about. I'd see her all day, man. Really? It's, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, okay. Hold on. Let's take a sip real quick. Water break. Future hearts. Mm-hmm. Is this the album when Mark Hoppus does a tune with you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long were you friends with them before this? Your worlds, I'm sure your paths had crossed out there. In the yeah, world. we we crossed each other's paths a couple times. Mark uh, reached out and, you know, blew our minds because Mark was, at, for us at that age, we like just, we idolized Blink. Like that was a, that was a huge reason that we were the band that we were. And um yeah, Mark Mark got in touch and just said, Hey, I like what you guys are doing. Like would love to write at some point. So I, I went in and wrote a couple songs with him. Tidal Waves was one of them. Of yeah, the so it was actually two? before that. Oh so this is a little bit of a rewind, but yeah, like we we were this those songs actually never saw ended up seeing the light of day. We just worked on a couple of things. It didn't end up being the right thing for the time. But but we started we sort of formed this friendship, mentorship out of it. And when we wrote the songs for future hearts. Um, I texted Mark and just said like, Hey, I think I have a song that could work. Would you consider? And I had asked him to feature on something before and he politely declined. Okay. So it was like, this had been a long time coming and I was just like, I'm going to chip away at this. I'm going to chip away at this. And, uh, yeah, Mark was down to do it. And, um, we, we went and recorded, uh, him on tidal waves and Ryan did the vocal tracking and like Ryan was so nervous that day. Cause it's like, you're, you're tracking freaking Mark Hoppus. Like what, what are we doing? Um, and it was, it was just this funny thing because it was such an out of body experience, but I like, we, I was friends with Mark at that point. So I had this personal relationship with him, but there was still these out of body moments of like, I was sitting there in the room going like, Oh yeah, this is normal. But then I'd be like, this isn't normal. What are you talking about? Like I was having a argument with myself internally going like nothing about this is normal. <laughs> like ask, ask Alex from three years ago, how he would feel about this moment. Yeah. And just checking in with yourself and having that realization of like, oh, this is cool. This is what it's all about. This is why you do music. This is why you strive for those things of like, you know, work hard and try to meet your heroes and, you know, pay respect, but also like work to be their freaking peers. You know what I mean? Like put yourself in those positions. And it was a really cool moment. And Mark is such a great guy, as you know, and, and a humble dude. And yeah. um, was was so great to us as we were coming up and, uh, that was just this really great moment of like finally getting a, like someone that we considered to be a music hero and so uh, influential to us coming and recognizing and collaborating with us. It was awesome. A hero and a peer. When a hero becomes your peer, yeah. that's got to be a weird thing. Yeah. And also a lot of validation at the same time. Massive validation, but but also just, you know, sort of reassure again, like validation and reassurance. Like it's, it's just that thing of like, yes, we're on the right path and we're making the right decisions and we're, 
we are forging ahead in a way that makes sense for us. You know, that that's what it really said for us was we're in the right place because we got people that we started out looking up to right. on our music. It was cool. And everyone is now going to say striker, ask about simple creatures. All right, I think I will. <laughs> Good but segue. Yeah, here Good we segue. Go. Here we go. Okay. So Simple Creatures, you guys did, I think, two EPs, which were yeah. really, really, really good. Thank you. What is your highlight from Simple Creatures? Uh, what do you think about if I just mention the project? Taking it to Australia. It has to be. I mean, we, you know, we set out with, with one thing in mind, and it became this whole other thing. The, that pro- I've talked about it before. We may have even talked about it before. But like, long story short, we weren't originally going to start a band. We, Mark hit me up out of the blue and said, Hey, I'm making a Mark and friends record. Mm. Cause I have some downtime. He was like, you know, talking to Josh Dunn from 21 pilots and, and all these other friends in the music industry that he had and like peers that he wanted to work with, but didn't have a good Avenue to do so. So he said, come write a song. It can be Mark features Alex. Cool. We went in, we got in the studio, we wrote two songs. And that night he texted me and just said, Hey, like I've been talking uh, to my manager Gus and like, the songs feel really good. Like there's something more here. What it like, we should do some more songs. And then he just said like, is this the band? And he, he just kind of threw that out there. And I went, Oh God, what? <laughs> like I, it was, that was big for me. Cause I'd yeah. never, I'd never, he'd done side projects before too. And so there was like, there were two things happening simultaneously. A, okay. Mark just asked me if I wanted to be in a band with him. B, it was, Oh no. Like, am I allowed to do a side project? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, right. can I, can I sell my boys out like this? Is that okay? <laughs> and so the next thing Jack was, has a cast on at 13 years I old. Know. What's he going to say? That's what came to my mind. I was like, can I do this? But yeah, I like, I, I remember texting, texting uh, the boys that night and being like, interesting news, interesting development. Uh, Mark asked if I wanted to start a band. Like, how do you guys feel about this? And in, in my mind, I was like, they might not take this well. They might be like, you're selling us out, dude. But no, they were lovely and went like, oh. you absolutely have to start that band. Um, and we were in a place where we were, we needed a break anyway. So I didn't creatively want to switch off. Uh, and I was, I was sort of in a place where I was happy to keep working on things, but other members of the band just wanted a little time. Um, and so it, it sort of was serendipitous in that, like it fell in a place where Mark had time, I had time. And uh, got the band's blessing. And um, yeah, we, we just went in and started writing a ton of music. And the two EPs were born of the fact that we had written like well over a CD's worth of songs, but decided that like packaging it that way is, might be overwhelming for a new projects. So we said like, let's just like trickle this out and have fun with it. And yeah, the, the highlight for me was taking it on tour because it was so different from anything we were doing in our respective bands. We didn't have a drummer. You know, we were playing like it was very we were very open about the fact that like this is a studio project mostly and like it's digital. It's, you know, the beat like the beats are our are, drummer. Are, 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 we, we joke that our drummer was a laptop. Right. And yeah. like, you know, <laughs> there was there was a, a moment in uh, in London where our, our tracks, our laptop froze. <laughs> and uh, Mark, Mark gets on the mic and oh, goes boy. like, Travis would never do this. <laughs> and uh, yeah, of course was, he's got the perfect line. I know for it. exactly. But yeah, just, just touring it, touring it was the, the coolest thing. Cause um, it was, it was a new experience. It was different music. And again, that, that feeling of like the, they were small shows, but they sold out like that. And just, again, that validation of like, people care, people care about what we're doing. People care about this new music you know, I think sometimes side projects, especially can sort of feel like vanity projects. Mm -hmm. And this, it became such the opposite of that. It was so organic and we were just doing things that felt fun and like agile in the moment. And that was very rewarding. 
Do you think you'll ever do a simple creature song again? Yes. Yes. I do, I do think okay. so. I do think All so. Right. We we talk give, give me a percentage on it. I'm gonna say, I mean, like 90%. Like I right. there's I don't think there's any reason we wouldn't. Like we we talk about it often. Like you know, we'll we'll check in with each other and just like, oh, we gotta we gotta do simple creatures. We gotta do like I mean, it's just it's at this point purely schedule. Like obviously Blink's firing on all cylinders right now. Yes. And for good reason, we all need that. So like I, you know, Mark's in blink mode. I'm in all time low mode. And that was something that from the get go, we sort of established, like, we're not going to quit our day jobs. Like this, this stuff is still really important to us, but when time is afforded, this is something that we're happy to come back to and, and play in that sandbox. Cause that's what it is. It's, it's literally just a sandbox for us to get weird and do weird, unexpected things. Um, did Mark ever approach you about being part of blink 182? No. Okay. No, I think when, when all of that went down, uh, I think Skiba was like there, he was the guy. He was the guy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I was like, obviously I was like, I know those songs. Yeah. <laughs> I would like, I, I, I could play a couple of those songs, but no, no. Okay. That was, that was, uh, the, the, the gears were in motion for that. Couple more things here. I don't think I could, to be honest. I think that would be like, I could, <laughs> I could have, I would, I would have loved to get on stage and like play. Yeah. With Blink, yeah. but I but I think like to become a, like a member of Blink would almost be like I don't know maybe too weird stomach ache inducing too I think. weird for also, me like yeah I think my head would have exploded you right know, I would have melted yeah into a puddle um, at the when we were young festival when you and Avril did all the small things yeah did Blink say anything to you about that did they like did they know like. They, yeah, I mean, I, I sent Mark a video of oh, it. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, and, yes. uh, and he was like, oh, that's awesome. Because uh, we're, <laughs> we're, both, we're both doing it this year. So it was kind of like this nice little serendipitous moment of like, it was a good setup for our bands doing it this go around. And um, it's always fun to get on stage with Avril. She's yeah. such, she's, she's phenomenal. She's so good, right? Yeah, she's ridiculous. Um, you and I have talked about Wake Up Sunshine so much in the past. It's an Austin album, blah, 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 blah. It was before the pandemic, blah, 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 blah. So you and I have already had 20 yes, minutes. Yes, we've, we've okay. touched on Wake Up, okay. for sure. So um, there's a specific song I want to ask you about because I want to play it on my show. Oh, awesome. So this is going to be for the, this is on the radio, out of order, on a station near you. So I would like to play off this album, uh, Calm Down. Thank you. Tell me. In a sentence or two, you don't tell me what it's about, but where this one came from. It was the final Hail Mary song for the record. Really? Yeah, it was the last one. We always throw one more out there okay. when, we're, when we're like just about through the mixing process. Yeah. I'll like really annoy Zach, our producer, and just be like, we should write <laughs> Zach today. Cervini. Zach Cervini, legend. I'll, I'll, I was sitting there and I, we just went like, I think we got one more. Let's go. And uh, yeah, we dove in on it for a day and, and, um, it was, you know, it ended up being really important for the record because we didn't have anything with that energy. It fit the vibe really well with the piano and the theatricality and the sort of this like epic feel to it. But um, we didn't have a song that, that was, the, the record is so uh, internal and, and sort of um, insulated that like this was, this is one of the few songs on this record that is kind of more big picture and a bit more universal. And it's a statement for everyone rather than like a, something that the character is experiencing internally. Um, and, and yeah, was, I'm so glad we wrote it. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. that thing where I look back and go, man, if we hadn't like thrown that one last thing, we'd be missing this such a pivotal moment on the record. So yeah, it, it, it pays to do that. It pays to take that chance for sure. Awesome. I'm glad you did. 
Thank you. Thank you for spending about an hour and 10 minutes with me. There is so much that I learned about you and the band that I did not know. And I'm again, thanks for coming all the way over to my house. And thank you for having me. Hanging out. Genuinely so stoked that we got to do this. Me too. It's great. Man, what a fun time. All time low. This is the album right there. Thanks for everything you've given us over the years musically. You've created a zillion memories for everybody. Thank you so much. And thanks for always being in our corner. Of course, man. All right. That's another Tuna on Toast episode for Alex. I am Stryker. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye. That was sick. Thank you. Thank you. Most likely. For sure.